goodness gracious, scorekeepers, we're back! It's episode 16 of The Score! 16! I know, it's our... Uh, we, we have a driver's license, we're driving... <laughs> Sweet 16! Straight to the moon, 16 candles! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone forgot my birthday! <laughs> this hot white man! I hope he brings me a cake! <laughs> You really did just sum up the whole movie. (laughs) (laughs) But he is attractive, though, Jake. I mean, good God. Oh, yeah. Look, what happened to him? Didn't he become like a carpenter in the woods or something? (laughs) He left Hollywood. He like left Hollywood and became like a carpenter and he lived in the woods. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. See, I didn't know. Mm hmm. Okay, I mean, that's kind of even better because I mean, he looks like that and can, like, build you a house. <laughs> and I think what? he was, like, the inspiration from for Aiden on Sex and the City. Was he really? I think so. I, I feel like I read that somewhere, but I don't know. Why are we... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the score. That's right. We started the show. <laughs> This is recording. Okay. We are, uh, we're live. So for any new listeners, and there might be a couple of you because we are officially the New York Times kind of tangentially mentioned podcast, The Score. I'll take Yay. it. Yeah, I will take I will it. Take I'll, it. I'll take it any way that I can get it. Shout out to Corey Ellison. Yes. Thank you so much yes. for mentioning us in, in that New York Times article, which of course, you know, I'm going to put in the show notes. <laughs> but for any new folks, my name is Rocky Jones. I am the EDI director here at Minnesota Opera, and I am joined by my two fabulous co-hosts, Lee Bynum, Vice President of Impact. Hello, America. Ooh, so sensual. <laughs> <laughs> and Paige Reynolds, our Civic Engagement Manager. Howdy. <laughs> <laughs> Equally essential. (laughs) (laughs) And this is The Score, as I've said like 10 times now. Uh, This is a podcast where we talk about uh, things going on in the opera industry, Mm -hmm. the classical music industry, through a lens that centers minoritized and marginalized folks. BIPOC folks, even though we don't like that term. People of the global majority. I got that from T. Michael Rambo last Ooh. week. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Isn't that nice? Right? I like that one. Yeah. Okay, shout out to T. Michael Rambo. Yes, People yes. of the global majority. Oh, uh-huh. I like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> LGBTQ+, mm-hmm. trans and non-binary mm-hmm. folks, women. Mm-hmm. We are here for all y'all. Yes. So... We have a very special guest today. <laughs> we have a guest co-host. We are so excited to have him on the podcast for the whole time we've captured him. <laughs> we're holding him hostage in our new space. Oh, by the way, we're in a new space. So a fabulous new space. Yes, a fabulous new space. Mm-hmm. Um but there might be a little bit of ambient noise <laughs> going on because we are in the opera center. So there is a, a nice tenor man across the hall practicing beautifully (laughs) so you might hear a little bit of that um so i guess just deal anyway (laughs) back to our guest (laughs) um we are so lucky to just have him in our lives just you know 
in general. (laughs) And we are so lucky to have him as a colleague because he brings his fabulous grounded Virgo energy (laughs) 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 into, into our space and just, you know, keeps the trains running on time and keeps us all organized. He is our amazing impact department coordinator, Mr. Frankie Charles. Yay! (laughs) Welcome to the score. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I've been listening to y'all's podcast for a since it started and I've just loved <laughs> loved everything that you guys talk about and getting Aww. to work with you all is just so special so so thank you well of course <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself Frankie where you're from yeah what uh, do you like to do sleep um. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you get into opera and classical music yeah, so a uh, little bit about myself to start. Um, I'm from a northern suburb of Chicago um, called Highland Park. Uh, went to DePaul University and got my BFA in theater technology um, and graduated in 2018 and then came up to Minnesota to be the opera's first resident artist assistant technical director um, in 2019 during the 2019 2020 season and then we hit pandemic um (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we had one really great regular season and then one pandemic season and then i i the opera hired lee and we restructured and then i found it i found a different calling (laughs) (laughs) uh but shout out to all my production folks because y'all work hard and i know that um but yeah, uh, I started in opera. I don't sing, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I was. Well, we'll get you drunk. We'll see about that. <laughs> Fair enough. I I have done karaoke before. It's not good. Um, <laughs> but I uh, started in opera. I was a um, stage crew apprentice at the Santa Fe Opera in the 2017 season. Um, was um, part of the onstage crew for the Steve Jobs opera that premiered that year. That was pretty neat. Um, And uh, then really didn't do anything with opera until I got the job um, here at Minnesota. And so I, I very much have a more traditional musical theater straight play background. um, And yeah, definitely a lot of that feistiness, I think, when it comes to some of the more uh, uh, rigid and traditional things that opera can do. I'm usually the one in the room that's like, why? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so that's, I think that's a bit about me. <laughs> so where does that come from, that that why? <laughs> Constantly questioning. Yeah, so growing up... Um, uh, how do I start this? Uh, my family, I guess I'll start with a little bit of that history. My family came to the United States from Cuba in the 60s. Um, and something that my grandfather always told me to do was ask questions. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know what part of his experience he was drawing that from, but I took that and I ran with it. <laughs> so whether I was in class or 
in a work meeting, I'm always kind of like, well, why do we have to do that this way? Why can't we do something a little bit different? Why can't we feature some different people, find some different talent, that kind of thing? Um, because, I don't know, something I've always carried with me is that there are a lot of people, I mean, people in general inherently have value, um, and so I just don't always understand why we go back to the way things are when we could find new ways and new people to do things with, which, in my experience, has always provided a better product um, a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, I'd say it's it's a little bit of that, but also... I was a rebellious child. Um, <laughs> um, a oh, I think I was in seventh grade when a history teacher called me. Uh, well, assumed that I was a liberal, without ever without me really knowing what that meant. Um, nice enough woman uh, from Texas, so she was far from home and definitely wasn't used to working with me. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so. My family always really focused a lot on uh, education and the value of that. Uh, my grandmother was a teacher in Cuba and then um, was uh, graduated from Loyola University in Chicago with her teacher teaching degree and was a CPS teacher for a long time um, before her passing. And uh, yeah, so I've... I've always known that there is so much for me to learn, and I've always wanted to continue to find ways to learn. And so when I realized that uh, I felt like I had reached my limit with production work, um, there, there was, there's always a fight to be had in terms of uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And uh, while that's something that while I'm when I'm back home in Highland Park in Chicago uh, is something that I don't think a whole lot of people quite understand given that uh, the suburb I'm from is predominantly white um, and that my family is not white. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's always been top of mind that there are people in this world who are not treated as well. And uh, it's definitely something that gets highlighted particularly um, well, I guess, uh, when I am around my family. So it's always something to challenge. Well, you know, I'm curious, you know, given your production background, and we've had a, a number of conversations over the last couple of years, <laughs> you know, just, you know, bringing, you know, and I think you're our first guest who is primarily, you know, has that production background, mm -hmm. has worked in production yeah, sure. and behind mm -hmm. the scenes. And there's just, I think it's a little mystifying for a lot of people, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> that part of, of our industry, our business. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, people come in, they buy a ticket, they see all of the singers on stage, you know, and the people around them and the audience and they're sort of judging like okay well there's some black people who are singing on stage oh there's some latinx folks around me in the audience there's some asian folks behind me in the audience like okay diversity cool <laughs> inclusion done check <laughs> but like there's just so many people who are behind the scenes who are 
opening the curtains, who are down in the pit, who are adjusting the lights, and you don't really think about sort of inclusion mm -hmm. um, in those spaces, especially like as an audience member or a lay person. And so, you know, here you are behind to steal another one of our properties, <laughs> Minnesota <laughs> Opera. Let's go behind the curtain. <laughs> but I'm just curious, you know, as an Afro-Latino man, um, what have some of your experiences been mm -hmm. um, sort of in the realm of production? And what are some of the things that, you know, in your experience um, need to, you'd, or some changes you'd like to see, some things you think need to change? Yeah. Um, well, I will say, uh, when I was growing up, um, I want to say I was the only person of color in uh, my classes for a solid couple of years, probably until about middle school. Um, and then when I got into theater, that was also the case. Um, <laughs> uh, in college, there were a couple of folks who were of color um, on the production and design side of things, um, and even less so in the uh, technical theater world, which is... Um, and I say that because design and tech are, tend to be two different things. Uh, so designers tend to be a little bit more diverse than some of the technicians, but it just sort of depends on when you're when and where you're looking at those technicians. Um, in terms of folks who freelance, there are not many. Um, I still get requests to technical direct things out of Chicago because I am maybe one, uh, if not the only, uh, Latinx sort of person on a list somewhere that exists on the internet for as a resource for these things um, and it it kind of breaks my heart to have to say hey I've moved to Minnesota I, <laughs> I, I can't do this because uh, I don't know who then to turn those people to who could uh, take on some of that work but yeah, it's it's tough, and it's definitely tough um, being a person of color, being taught by predominantly white um, faculties and staff. Uh, I've been lucky to have some very good folks, but um, even those well-meaning folks don't always understand the kind of impact they can have. Um, it's something I've dealt with while even here um, in this department, things like... I've had, I've been taught by uh, people who've actually thrown like two by fours across a room, and then I am expected to work with other like white supervisors and like mm -hmm. I don't yeah. think they'll throw something at me, but you never really know. <laughs> I've had that exact same experience, yeah. and it's it's terrifying. Yeah. So yeah. in in something that I would want to instill in folks who listen to this podcast especially is like if you're gonna if you're gonna invite new folks just make sure you're, you're feeling safe because mm -hmm. if you don't feel safe in an environment they're definitely not gonna feel safe in that environment um, but yeah in terms of uh, being 
like a trans man of color working in a field that is predominantly uh, white and cisgender male, uh, it has been tough. Uh, people are definitely willing to learn and to hear, but not always to act. Um, and that sort of informed my move into the impact department. I wanted to be able to give back to my communities in a way that production work has not allowed me to do before. Um, and I won't say that as a sort of absolute, like I have worked on um, a show called Augusta and Noble that uh, is a children's show about um, Mexican-American immigrants who have come over and are now living in Chicago and uh, their daughter gets to a very prestigious school um, on the north side and she's coming from the west side, uh, west south side, which is very different than the north side and how she navigates a class project about um, her history and where she's from and figuring out what it means to be from a different place and telling that story to a group of peers who are more or less from the place where you are. Um, and I've got quite a bit of experience with that, and it's it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, I, so you said, Rocky, um, Afro-Latinx, uh, and I'd, I am frequently asked if I identify that way or if I don't, and I personally don't think I really know how best to identify, um, and it's mostly because of figuring out how to tell my story mm -hmm. to a group of people who don't really have any context um, for the history of the place where I my family is from. Um, uh, my grandfather was most definitely like Afro Latino, Afro Latinx, however you want to say it. Um, and my family reflects that up until you get to me. Um, I am of a lighter complexion. When I was growing up, there were definitely people who tried to peg me as anything but. Um, I have had people think that I'm white, and that is the most confusing, but... <laughs> really? <laughs> really. Because huh. where? Like, what? Like, <laughs> like Mediterranean? Yeah, like, uh, they. I've had people maybe? just straight up try to guess, and I'm like, your guess is as good okay. as mine, but I do know what my mother looks like, so... <laughs> and, and stuff like that, it always, it gets a chuckle. But when you're growing up and you're young, it really does sort of get the wheels turning and is like, who am I? What am I? Mm. Um, and I was of that age where the census had also been uh, released. And I was like, Mom, how do I respond? Um, and there was never any really good answer. Uh, I look... Uh, like... Any other, I think, um, lighter skin Latinx person. Um, however, my mom um, and her brother uh, are much darker. So there have definitely been times where people have asked if my mom and I are related at all. Um, mm -hmm. 
I've had people ask if she was my nanny, uh, which is one of my, oh, yeah, it's the, it's the one example from my childhood that I like, I can't get out of my head ever. Um, because she worked so hard and I am just so thankful for the work that she's done because there's definitely like, I don't even know the number of times that she's pushed me to follow the dreams that I have simply because the same kind of opportunities were not presented to her is something that I've been acutely aware of since very young. Um, We grew up through the same school system and uh, throughout my time in that system she was for better or for worse very transparent about the fact that the way people were treating me was better than the way people had treated her but also keep in mind and not even this doesn't excuse anything but when she came over, or she she was born here, um, when my family came over, um, again, they were living in a predominantly white uh, area, um, north of, for anyone who knows Chicago, north of Skokie. Uh, Skokie, at that point, had been dealing with... Um, uh, neo-nazis kkk that kind of thing that that definitely isn't out of um out of their understanding uh but like before either before my mother was born or before we were in the house that i then grew up in and that she grew up in like we had people burning crosses on our lawns people who didn't understand yeah it was People sort of forgave the color of my family's skin when they realized that they also spoke Spanish. Mm. And then when my family realized that they, like, my mom learned English from Sesame Street. um, But I can't speak any Spanish. Um, And it is something that I frequently discuss with Lee about how to navigate because the, the loss of language... I feel it every day, um, but it's not something, oh, that's the other thing. When I was in school, I dropped Spanish um, senior year, and they told me that I should have been in native-speaking Spanish because I am technically a part of a native-speaking sp- family, but because on paper, no one really thought about it. I was in uh, what the language director at the time called uh, white people Spanish, so, mm. Which is why I assume I learned nothing. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, there's only so many times I can go over the freaking colors and numbers. Um, <laughs> it just it doesn't work. It doesn't serve me any well. When it can, I'm trying to speak a language and have conversation, 
all I can say is Rojo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Rojo Caliente. Yeah. <laughs> Conjugate a star 15 times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's stuff does Yo not... tango hombre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I can laugh about it now, but I was screaming into a void back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's... It's been tough to get here for me, uh, and I just, the sacrifices my family have made, whether they've wanted to or not, um, I carry that history with me in ways that I don't think uh, many people recognize, um, and I think that is because of a level of the colorism that is in the world. Uh, people don't think I can come from a person who is darker than me, um, but... I mean, look like y'all know. <laughs> Family can look very different depending on mm-hmm. where yeah. you are, who you are. Uh, so yeah, it's there are lots of whether it's my gender or whether it's uh, where my family is from. I I keep people guessing. <laughs> <laughs> you you said a lot of like super interesting things right and there are two pieces that are really sticking with me right now the first one is just more an observation of what you're saying that i i think about a lot i feel like here in america we are deeply unresolved around issues of latinidad right i think we don't understand it and sort of the ways that the united states has sought to construct this like pan uh, Latinx identity for any number of people who essentially like share a linguistic group and not one definite culture, right? I think has only contributed to how much we don't get and how little space we give people, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I feel like I want to just name that and, and honor what you've said because it's an ongoing challenge for a lot of folks and because I am so much older than you are think about that sometimes or when you just gave your graduation year I was like oh that's when I started teaching college um, <laughs> but over the course of my life how much this has shifted how people talk about it how people think about it and I can only imagine how complicated it is you know for that to mark your experience right and then the second thing is this idea of screaming into a void and I think all of us at this table have felt it even though our stories are not identical Part of why impact exists is so that there are are people who are there to receive that scream, right? And then to actuate something, hopefully something useful on the other side. Can you say a little bit about maybe what you didn't get in your theater education coming up that people need to hear and think about so that more of their students can feel like people recognize their humanity and are shaping their pedagogy around who they're teaching Mm -hmm. yeah uh i'd say that it's like i know and and coming from a bfa program uh you've got a smaller number of students theoretically you've got a more concentrated um process on paper um but you really as an educator, I think need to need to focus on each and every person you're working with. Uh, 
when I was in undergrad, I was going through the bulk of my transition and trying to be a human being while also trying to produce, like, I was only assigned technically three productions a year, but on top of working and classwork and all of that other stuff, there was little to no time for me to go and take my hormones or for me to go and take time to process um, anything, really, mm-hmm. uh, that by the time graduation came around, it was a means to an end. It's like if I knew if I could get my shows done earlier, I could have top surgery, and then I wouldn't, like, they couldn't tell me no mm-hmm. because I'd be done with my obligations at the school. Um, And I had built a relationship with my professor at that point where I was like, you know I need this. I know I need this. I'm going to go and do this. And he made sure that it could happen. And he was um, a good white cis man. There are some. (laughs) They exist. Um, (laughs) He did his best, and he knew that... uh, he was not necessarily equipped at the time to handle all of the problems, but him listening. And when I, when I, I came out to this man, like him telling me that it was fantastic (laughs) that I was finding myself like things like that, that it means the world. So if you're an educator, just make sure that you're a person that your students can come to, um, because I think at the end of the day, like, you're kind of fostering young adults. And, I mean, as at my current age and, like, knowing people who are older than I am, I don't believe any adult really has it together. And if they do, if they say they do, they're lying. (laughs) (laughs) I saw something the other day. And was a, a little like like kids don't realize at the time that they're actually watching their parents grow up, too. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh snap! And that yeah. made me like, oh, I should call my mom. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's so true. It's true. Yeah. It's it's the thing. the The number of things that my mom has learned from me, I and it it touches back into the larger conversation we've wanted to have about colorism, my mom doesn't see herself as a black woman. Um, And my uncle, similarly, I don't think sees himself as a black man. They're Hispanic. But I think that is a tool to remove themselves from the the black identity, which is something that I can claim very little of. Um, But when I was young, it was a little bit more black and white, pardon the pun. Um, (laughs) But like, if someone couldn't treat my mom well, what was I to expect of them and their treatment of me? And if their treatment of me changed when they met my mother, what does that mean for me? Um, And so I navigate spaces with that more or less constantly in mind, um, which is why I think very, very early on I decided to not be palatable for the 
white folks in the world. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but it's just something that I didn't come to terms with until recently. Uh, and now having a, 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 a white partner, it's, it's just very funny. Um, <laughs> Girl, tell me about it. <laughs> I've, the number of times I've had to reassure them that it's like, no, I don't hate white people. I hate white supremacy and was it yeah. what it does to people because that's really what it, it, it ruins. It mm-hmm. ruins people. It ruins relationships. It, mm-hmm. it, it just hurts so much. And there are things that people do that they don't notice um, because of these things. And there are things that I've done to try and assimilate to people that I thought were worth assimilating to only to find out that I don't want to be like them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would much rather be a joyful, loving, kind-hearted person and claim my identities the way I need instead of being told what I look like and who, what boxes I fit in for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, again, like when people are guessing what who I am, what I am, they're putting me in a box for their, their ease. It, it truly only fucked me up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't know what or like, yeah. Yeah. Don't put people in boxes. It's not nice. No. <laughs> <laughs> I I just feel that I have so many thoughts and feelings about what you just said. <laughs> I mean, like, though I come from like a really like different background, like I can absolutely identify with like what you're saying about it just you you get to a point of realizing that like oh the boxes make other people comfortable not mm-hmm. not me and <laughs> like and then i mean well not everybody but some of us then decide to rebel against it and <laughs> <laughs> i definitely i i definitely definitely feel that and it's 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 interesting just the ways that white supremacy like I, I feel like can like keep us from having a, a sense of pride mm-hmm. about about our background too like it not to like project any kind of like feelings about <laughs> onto you but yeah. like I definitely felt like a tinge of like sadness that just like Oh man, like because of white supremacy, so many of us have to have like these big old question marks mm-hmm. or we have to figure stuff out and instead of just getting to feel like pride around around who we are mm-hmm. and and where we come from. And instead we got to renegotiate, rediscover or some people just straight up hide it mm-hmm. or like Yeah. Yeah. And some people lose it. Yeah. Sadly enough. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, and it's it's tough because I, for better or for worse, I will frequently sort of educate my mom on how the way that she perceives other people is just not conducive to anything healthy. Yeah. It's it comes from a place of wanting to like I love my mother 
and I want her to be safe um, and comfortable wherever she is, but she's much more abrasive than I am, which is, it works in her, her favor. Because <laughs> she knows most people won't shut her down. Um, Tread lightly, Brandy. <laughs> Tread lightly. Uh, but yeah, she's, we've definitely had to have many a conversation where I, I shed a little bit more of a modern perspective on identity for her. Um, and similarly, like my uncle will say that there are, there is no like black or white, which again, I think is another thing that's sort of fed to us in Latin America, mm-hmm. just to sort of other um, the folks who are darker. And it's, it's not conducive to the sort of unified environment or nation whatever you want to call it that many people of Latin America sort of promote because it's just erasing a whole group of people that Mm -hmm. arguably have been there and will always be there Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I just I yeah and it has a particular kind of valence in the Caribbean right where I feel like we were talking about this a few days ago, Paige, where there are like so many yeah. more nuances to racial identification and then there are pieces of it, you know, like the, the glory of America was like this idea that you have one drop of, of African blood in you, like it defines everything about your experience and in other parts mm-hmm. of the world, they're interpreting the project differently, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if your eyes are this color, your hair is this texture, mm-hmm. it means this, that, and Are you third. black and Spanish? Are you black and Indian? Right, exactly. Are you Indian and Spanish? Exactly. Are you Chinese and Spanish? Or And they all have different names. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and I feel like I've noticed in some Caribbean contexts, like, even the order in which people will describe, like, admixtures, like, becomes very, very interesting. Like, you'll meet someone and they're like, oh, yeah, I am Taino. And it's like, well, you may have just whispered in black, but I can see you, right? <laughs> so, like, there, there's this whole moment of, like... Which your skin is screaming. Right. <laughs> I am looking into a mirror at this moment. One of the things that... My dad would say a lot of very complicated things about race, and what made them complicated to me is that my parents elected to raise us in a place where there were just like not a lot of black people it was we're gonna put you in the best schools possible thank you it was great got everything out of it and now (laughs) on the other side of it you know there are other pieces right and they had to make choices about what they wanted for us so we we existed in this household where we were in a community the, the schools everybody was white and here we are a black family and my parents are like making these choices like the picture of Jesus on the wall would only be the black Jesus we were told Santa Claus was black <laughs> if there was a G.I. Joe or a Barbie then they were the black ones you know I didn't know that there were white G.I. Joes for quite some time as a matter of fact <laughs> um, not that I ever played with the G.I. Joes but the the broader I, point <laughs> I, I'm having some trouble seeing that I'm just saying <laughs> I give them different names and have them act out storylines mm-hmm. from The Young and the Restless. Ooh, okay. But 
so <laughs> Snake Eyes is Victor. <laughs> <laughs> Who's gonna be Nikki? <laughs> Who's gonna Lady be Jenny. Ashley? <laughs> that was Scarlet. <laughs> and you and it was like they were being so deliberate so that we didn't lose it. My dad would always talk about your race is a triangulation between what you understand it to be and what other people understand it to be, right? Mm -hmm. And he would always encourage us, do not lose sight of the fact of how people are seeing you because that is informing how they are treating you and what the expectations were. And it felt so uncomfortable, right? Because I wanted to think everybody was just seeing me as me, Mm -hmm. you know? And we weren't, it wasn't like in third grade, I'm sitting having conversations with teachers, right? And then I would have somebody say something like, I've never had a black kid in my class as smart as you and have no idea what to do with something like that Mm -hmm. and be so Mm -hmm. confused thinking, if this is a compliment, why do I feel so small Mm -hmm. right now, right? And my parents were people who, because of where they were from, my mother didn't go to school with white people until she was in 10th grade. That's when busing started. You know, Brown Mm -hmm. v. Board was 1954, didn't actually take hold until the 70s. And she had these stories about like being a black girl in a calculus class, like in early 70s and how traumatized, I mean, that sounds traumatizing now, right? With her by herself with all of these white men. Mm -hmm. But whatever it was then, like that was a worldview thing. My dad talked about never going to school with anybody white until grad school. Like literally making it all the way, he went to an HBCU, he he didn't know any white people until adulthood. So there were conversations that, they didn't even know to have with us yeah. about things that we were experiencing. And like, that's a, I, I feel like this is a piece that guides how I think about everything now, right? Mm-hmm. Wanting everybody to feel like you are empowered to be who you are. You should say what you feel. No one's perspective is going to be the, the dominant one here. Like we're all supposed to find this space. And I feel like it's, everything in this country militates against this idea mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and and living in this world living in this country rather you can lose sight of the fact that fewer than 1 billion people on the planet are white right it it's just mm. easy to think that there are what 1.7 or 8 billion black people in africa and what 800 million white people in europe like these are not even things that i think we we realize that more of the experience that we have, our cultural experience, our values, these are like so present across the world. And we live in this country that, that makes us feel like there's something weird and exceptional and unusual and exotic about what we're eating, how we're dressing, mm-hmm. what my hair does. I had somebody actually be surprised. My hair is up, people. You can't see it. It's an, it's in a ponytail. <laughs> and I had somebody at my old job ask me, how did I get my hair into a ponytail one day? And I was like, but it's hair, right? You know it does what <laughs> yours does in, in if, a way, right? If I had a nickel... <laughs> if I had a nickel for a number of times people ask me, how do I wash my hair? Mm. With shampoo in my hands? <laughs> how do you? <laughs> right. Is that not the question? How do you wash your hair? How do you wash your hair? But do I mean, yeah, no, I feel... I, <laughs> No, but I was, <laughs> so I, I was just going to say, though, that I had a very similar experience, though, um, because my 
parents both went to HBCUs as well. Um, but my dad ended up going to business school at Harvard in the 60s Ooh, as a wow. black man. I know. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I didn't find out until I was much, much older um, that, you know, I always just thought that, like, they sent me to this very prestigious white school in Northern Virginia. You know, I was just, you know, from like five years old. So I always knew that I was very different from everyone, but I was just kind of too young to really sort of like I knew that like everything was very different from like the way that like, you know, what happened over here at home and like with my parents' friends and they would come over for dinner or like when we would be in family situations was very different than what happened over here. But like, <laughs> but, but everyone just kind of sees me the same, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I remember very vividly that I guess there was some sort of fad in vogue DEI, but not called DEI, I guess tolerance probably is what it was called in the late 80s, (laughs) had taken hold, and they wanted to get more people of color going to the school. Um, And so they would just kind of pull me out of class, and then all of a sudden I'd be, like, at a conference, like, center in D.C. for, you know, like, you know, people of color and their children, like a school fair or something, and they'd bring like all these parents around and like, look at this model young black man. (laughs) Or yeah, no, totally. Like, like, doesn't he speak so well? Like say something for the children. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. And I remember getting pulled out of class a number of times and being like, okay, so like here are like these two white children, like, you know, and I'm like six or seven or something. And they're like, okay, we're gonna just have you like frolicking across this field. Oh. And then all of a sudden, like I'm on like the cover of a brochure. <laughs> 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 and I remember like going to my, my mom and I was maybe eight or nine and I was like, this feels effing weird. I probably didn't say effing, but I was just like, this is, this is really weird. And my mom going, yeah, it really is. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore because, like, it makes me feel bad. Like, I'm, you know, like, an animal in the zoo. And, like, everyone's just telling me, like, how, like, like, oh, my gosh, he's he's so, what a, what a, what an amazing specimen. <laughs> and it wasn't until I was so much older that, like, I really realized what was you know, happening there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that I was just sort of living out this Ralph Ellison nightmare <laughs> scenario. <laughs> and like so many of the things that I sort of had to unlearn that I didn't even realize had become so deep seated um, inside me. Like this idea that like, you know, I'm this sort of model minority or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and it wasn't until I was much older to go back to, to that idea that like that my father had experienced so much trauma in his situation mm-hmm. that like, you know, we tell the story that like, oh, he is this this amazing, you know, black man who got into Harvard in the 60s and so much, but like he carries so much trauma with him from that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's kind of like what we talked about a few weeks ago in the student debt relief conversation where it's just like so exciting like oh my god he got into harvard but then once he's there right you know right what is right what is the support that he's getting right 
Mm-hmm. What is this experience? Mm-hmm. And then what are we passing that, passing down mm-hmm. to the next generation? Mm-hmm. A lot of trauma. A lot right? of trauma. A lot uh, of trauma. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, <laughs> 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 I think maybe it's time maybe we take a little break, a little breather, and we'll come back and we'll continue this conversation. And we just wanted to keep talking. <laughs> we're having a good time. So, you know, Paige, I know you had a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep kicking it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think my, my experience growing up, like my parents were like aware of and like contending with a lot of the things that y'all have already mentioned but they took a slightly different approach of like wanting us to just have so much pride and like our blackness that it made us you know confident enough to deal with whatever bs you know came with it so for example we had like African art from all over the diaspora, all over our house. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I grew up that I found out that's not even my mama's favorite type of art. She loves French Impressionism. (laughs) 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 This was out of her mouth. She was like, but we wanted you girls to have pride. And so (laughs) we decorated the house. I wanted the water lilies. (laughs) And then y'all came along. She's like, I I like to take the water lilies down. I like Degas. I like those kinds of things, but yeah. Instead, we got the Gullah Geechee art and the Faith Ringold uh, quilt uh, quilt print on the wall and different types of masks and stuff. And I was like, well, I mean, it it worked. Mission <laughs> mission mission accomplished. And yeah, I think it took me a while to realize like just how much anti-blackness especially internalized anti-blackness was out there in the world because the other part of that that they taught us was that like other black folks no matter what background like they are from like we're like cousins we have a shared struggle we and even to some degree other other people of color like recognizing that they have a similar struggle with with white supremacy like that was that was just really like made clear there was no there was no diaspora wars there was no oh but we're black and they're puerto rican oh but we're black and they're nigerian Mm -hmm. and like there 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 was none of that it was just like they taught us to see us as unified to the point where I think it actually took me a while to realize like how much nuance there was and how much like people come from different places and don't always identify that way. Like it was shocking to me the first time I met a person who clearly looked black to me and did not want to identify that way. I was just like, wait, what? Like, but I, I see you and like, you're the same color as me. You don't love being black? Like, you know, you don't love it? It's not lit to you? And like, <laughs> I, I I could not comprehend. And 
yeah, that is just like kind of marked my experience. And I feel like going to an HBCU was, it, it taught me a lot about all these different ways that blackness and anti-blackness is mm-hmm. configured across across the world. And like, it gave me a whole lot more pride even and just all these different blacknesses, <laughs> plural. Um, but also realizing like how much some people would try to to get away from that or or hearing from other people who had some experiences like similar to what y'all have called out about you know distancing themselves from a certain black american experience or you know maybe they grew up around like mostly or or just white folks and have we're we're coming into like a different awareness of themselves like there were even black kids there who honestly who felt out of place and said so like being among all are mostly black people Mm -hmm. and had to like contend with some of their internalized Mm anti-blackness while being at a hbcu and yeah yeah that was one of the reasons my mother even said she wanted me to go in the first place because she was like you know i'll support you any school that you go to but i will say that there has been a certain way that her like my friends and colleagues who went to hbcus carry themselves she's like they have a different kind of of confidence about themselves and even in and almost especially in predominantly white environments um and like she wanted that for me um because like i i mean i grew up around plenty plenty of other other black folks but it wasn't like a all black environment it was very yeah it, it was very united nations looking uh, him up in my mm-hmm. <laughs> up in my neighborhood a lot of the time and friends of all colors and backgrounds and still plenty of black folks too though mm-hmm. like my my block was mostly mostly black folks maybe all black folks at one point so yeah there's just it's like there's we all have to deal with the thing and there are just so many ways of of dealing with it and i will say i think i think for them it also had to do with them both growing up in detroit Mm -hmm. which detroit is still to this day no matter how much people try to gentrify (laughs) a mostly black city like it it it'll probably always be that way love detroit um (laughs) so they just i mean they didn't they didn't know anything else like yeah they had been to other other places or my mom went to school um out of state it's escaping me right now but she went to somewhere in a real white state um but still like had just you know a sense of pride i i have a i have an inkling that maybe she experienced some things there that just made her come back and be like okay so when i have kids we're gonna make sure we you know ground them real solid in you know a sense of pride about about their identity but yeah i think i think we are in a time where like more people are are contending with that Mm -hmm. and it's showing and like even i I think like the number of 
of uh, students applying to HBCUs is like higher higher than ever mm-hmm. right now. And, like that's like really saying something that people mm-hmm. like don't want to see themselves as less than anymore. Mm-hmm. Don't want to see themselves at, not reflected in the in what they're learning and. I mean that's that's beautiful. It's it's sad that we still even have to do that. It's true. It's true. You know, and I think that's getting to the central issue that I didn't I don't think I said super clearly before. But like when I was, you know, looking at colleges and I'd had this experience at this prestigious white school, like it kind of between my parents, it was like my dad over here having had that experience mm-hmm. at Howard and then going to Harvard experiencing, you know, Everything that he experienced was like, I want you to go to to Howard. Mm. It's really important to me <laughs> <laughs> that you have that experience at Howard. And then my mom over here, you know, like she is a black woman. She loves her blackness. She same thing. There was African art all over the walls, yep. <laughs> like pretty much exclusively black authors on our bookcase. <laughs> it was not that she wanted to deny my blackness or her blackness in any way, but she also wanted to make sure that like I had the best of everything mm. and that I also like had all of the things that I wanted. And at the time, like I wanted to go to New York and I wanted to be an actor and I wanted my name to be in lights. And then like all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, you just got a full scholarship to like an Ivy League school in the city where you're saying that you want to live. Go do that. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time it was just like, yeah, obviously, of course. But I, in retrospect, there was so much that I had to unlearn like the second that I got up there. And I'm thinking like, oh, I'm going to be in New York. I'm going to be like you know, in the most, like, multicultural, you know, melting pot salad bowl city in the entire world. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I need to, I'm just going to spend the next four years confronting some of the anti-blackness that just, like, seeped into me through cultural osmosis and, like, taught me Mm -hmm. to just, like, hate myself, like, in a way that, like, and then feeling like I didn't have that support that I needed or didn't really know how to ask for it that like I probably would have had an easier time had I gone to Howard at least being able to feel like I had sort of a cushion to fall back on Mm -hmm. um and it's just like you said it's just it's sad that still you know we all have to not all of us but you know many of us have to go through that we have to sort of walk through this white supremacist minefield. Um, But, you know, Frankie, you were saying something really interesting when we were taking our break. Yeah, so the impact department is the first department or entity that I've worked within where it's mostly people of color. Um, And the thing that sort of I don't know it it makes me happy and breaks my heart all at the same time but like I had thought that in going into theater I would be experiencing more different kinds of people and when I got further into a production career I realized that that just wasn't the case um and especially uh I mean 
depending on where you are, like your production departments can be predominantly one thing or another thing. And within the industry, that's just never truly the case. It is mostly uh, predominantly white um, and cisgender. Uh, and it's it changed it changed a whole lot of my perspective when Lee was brought in and when Rocky you are you moved um, to your new position and it felt like there were people of color in the company that even though I wasn't directly working with either of you but I could go to you and we could have a conversation and know what we were talking about um, <laughs> without needing some like five page explanation email because I've sent a lot of those just to try and ask for a day off and it's exhausting um, but I really do just want to encourage anybody out there that like if you've been working if you're a person of color or if you're a queer person and you've been largely working in environments that are cis or white just try to try to find folks that look like you that understand you because it it makes a world of a difference i feel like a stronger person I'm not going to say different person but like a stronger person since joining the impact team and it's really because I'm around people who understand what I'm saying when I say I'm really tired of just nonsense that just has to go about that we go about while just existing um, as a queer person of color and I wouldn't trade this experience for anything because y'all really have like changed the game for me uh, I mean there there are lots of reasons why people say things are the way they are but again they really don't have to be and I think we've proven that because Lee's come in and run a department the way that I would want anything to operate just <laughs> <laughs> humanity first <laughs> I didn't ask him to say that, just so everybody knows. <laughs> I've been saying that long before Lee asked me, Lee and Rocky asked me to be on a podcast, so. <laughs> but yeah, it's, if you, if you can, if you can find people that, and honestly, like, a floor was separating us, like, two staircases, not even, <laughs> uh, before the company restructured, and I would just sit through all staff meetings and be like, ooh, Rocky and Paige are so cool. <laughs> I was like, Frankie's so cool. <laughs> I was like, I'm in the super cube. I know I'm cool. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm cute. <laughs> But it's don't don't let anything keep you from your people, whether you know they're your people or not, because it really was it was sort of a leap of faith. Um, my position with the department and especially the the career move. But I again, I feel like I'm doing the right things now as opposed to just putting up another production and, and that that helps me sleep at night. <laughs> well, that's that. good to hear considering 
how much of your work with us has really been self-directed, right? And even the way you came to us, which is like my favorite hiring story ever, was Frankie sent me an email and said, hey, I think you might have a need for these 10 or 12 things that I do really, really well. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, all of that. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> and, and I think the kind of initiative and, and foresight that you took, right, and sort of thinking broadly about if this department is intended to touch these people and do this kind of work and tackle these kinds of issues and you have a perspective, a very clear, valuable perspective on them, bringing that to the fore and saying, hey, I'm the person who can help you accomplish these goals. And you were right, clearly. So like that, that's the thing I think more people of color, more queer people have to take that initiative to do. Because I think in some of these all white spaces, these are either doors that are open for people automatically or, or people are socialized to know. Go to your boss and say, hey, I can do this, that, and the third, and that's how promotions happen. That's how raises come, right? And I think frequently we don't know to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm, you know, really hoping as a company we can change that culture a lot too mm -hmm. yeah. um right now i'm like being struck by how we've also mentioned like we've talked a lot about the dimension of like race and like ethnic identity but also like queerness and being a queer like black person mm -hmm. person of color in general in some context like because as much as I loved Howard, there can be a whole other aspect of cis heteronormativity. Yeah. Compulsory <laughs> heterosexuality that <laughs> can be a doozy like amongst amongst our folks mm -hmm. like I uh, I appreciate how many times you have said Frankie cis and white and <laughs> 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 like let's be clear it's it's it's, it's both the things yes. it's yeah 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 or and... cis hetero and white and but even amongst cis hetero and all black and brown folks like there can be some harm that happens mm -hmm. or some real like reconciliation we mm -hmm. have to do with our with our identities mm -hmm. like even being among all black folks like i i remember coming out to my peers in like middle school or something mm -hmm. like that in like eighth grade but did not feel comfortable like mm -hmm. actually openly claiming it or really leaning into it or finding community around it until like uh, like in, in let's just say early 20s somewhere in mm -hmm. there after being at Howard and yeah I mean being being in theater helped of course it, it definitely would have been worse if I was not in theater oh yes like, <laughs> oh, yeah. like yeah, open the door I, <laughs> yeah because when I was talking before about Maybe I would have been more comfortable at an HBCU. I forgot it for a second I was gay. And now you're speaking. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was. I remember specifically like black gay men having to have like their own like camaraderie, camaraderie and safety with each other, even at 
my HBCU. Mm. Like, mm. yeah. I didn't come out until I was 20. Um, and for me, it wasn't even, like, a thing that sort of crossed my radar. And, like, you mm. all, like, know me. Like, mm. I'm gig, 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 capital G. <laughs> 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 like, girl. <laughs> Not even. So, like, imagine, like, 17-year-old me being like, I'm defying stereotypes. Why can't a straight man enjoy musical theater and fashion? <laughs> and, <laughs> and people just being like, okay. <laughs> I mean, you are right, but it's also like... But also... Yeah. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> and so, like, you know, and it finally took, like, I met this guy, and we were, like, sleeping together for, like, a year before it finally dawned on me, like, oh, okay. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. <laughs> but like you said, I found that, like, being in New York, being in that environment was much a much like as as sort of coming out of that you know cocoon <laughs> if you will um you know was it, it it felt you know i'll tell this story as well <laughs> um you know my father right now is great and he's a fantastic father he's a fantastic father in in law to my husband um but at the time growing up he had some learning to do <laughs> and my mother was very accepting and very cool in fact i don't know if i told this story on the podcast but when i finally came out to her i think it was like spring break of like my junior year of college i think and i went home and like i like of course was like you know like this like teen drama like you know beforehand just like how am I gonna say this how am I gonna tell her I just and finally like sat her down on the couch I was like mom I have to tell you something I've been thinking about it for a really long time you know and you came out and she just looked at me and she just was like honey (laughs) sweetie you sitting me down on the couch and telling me that you're gay is like you telling me that you're black Like, oh, so you're you're okay with that then? <laughs> so like, I had this experience like growing up, like you know, my mother had you know primary custody of me, and she was always just like, do whatever you wanted to do. She would let me like take markers and draw on her walls because like you know, I know it's yeah. insane. Yeah, <laughs> because and like not like the first time I was like, <gasps> and she came home, she was like, that's great. yeah like you know like my mom's awesome she's (laughs) but like i think like at the time like my dad had this idea that like i needed to be in order to survive in the world i needed to be a you know proper cis masculine man and like that Mm -hmm. is how i would survive moving through this world and so Mm -hmm. as i grew up and like you know i'm like six years old like yes i want like my princess dress and like whatever he's like no (laughs) (laughs) and you know and there was just a lot of you know folks in my life especially on his side of the family um who felt the same way as him and so i got these messages that like 
you know, expressing my femme side was not okay. And, like, mm-hmm. that was only okay in, like, spaces, like, you know, where my mother was present or, like, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, sh- we would go to, like, you know, the symphony or art shows or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where, you know, I could be, like, my full self. But, like, it was enough that, like, it just was, like, drilled into me. Like, I still took in all of those messages that, like, okay, this is this is not okay. And, like, if somebody asks you if you are gay, you are going to stamp that out <laughs> like as much as possible you are straight at the day long you are going to date women you're going to have sexual relationships with women I <laughs> Lee <laughs> I know I know the 80s were a different time and place but just hearing it the you know? 80s 90s <laughs> <laughs> You know, I had a waiter last weekend. Guess I was 32. <laughs> this is not cracked. How dare you? You just threw me when you said you were six. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was still like, okay. No, no. As an adult. <laughs> anyway, long story short. <laughs> sort of having to be in spaces, you know, those intersections, you know, and, and that, that safety piece, you know, of course. Um, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this anymore. Um, so somebody feel free to jump in and save me. <laughs> I mean, it is ultimately like about, I feel like with so many parents or just guardians or family in general, like they want us to be safe. Exactly. You know? Like, exactly. I had a good heart to heart with my, I, I don't, with my dad one time. I don't remember how this even came up. Um, he was driving me home from, from Howard, I think think after one semester and we just got on the topic of of homophobia and he um my my older sister is also identifies as queer and one of her like best friends that she's had since elementary or middle school or something he was around our house a lot and you know kind of became like another another child to my parents and so um we were we were just talking about it and my dad was like yeah like um his name is kevin kevin if you're listening hey Hi, miss kevin. you um he was like yeah like kevin went like kevin coming out made me have to like content like deal with my with my homophobia because he was like okay like if i love kevin then i have to be okay with this mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that was and, and that was it for him like period like (laughs) he wasn't gonna like deny Kevin and like what makes him happy in his identity and like yeah he for for the sake of maintaining his homophobia just no and he was very clear about like where he learned that it was as a starting very young Mm -hmm. as a kid in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and seeing who would get bullied Mm -hmm. for appearing feminine, for possibly being gay. And he was like, you know, you and at that age, you join in lest you become Mm -hmm. the target Mm -hmm. of of the jokes. And so it was just like as clear as day. (laughs) Like he had a very clear sense of just where it comes from. And it's just you know, it's, it's not wanting to, your kid to be that, yeah. that target yeah. wanting to be yeah. 
the one in the neighborhood who's who's getting chased down or being bullied and you know once mm-hmm. they realize that like okay they're okay like <laughs> mm-hmm. or realize that like even if you know things can get a little sticky out there like they're clearly happier and like mentally spiritually safer mm-hmm. being who they are yeah yeah no it's it's super interesting I think because in my own family, when I came out, my mom, it wasn't difficult, but it took some time when I, especially when I came out as trans, because the first sort of question out of everybody's mouth was, why would you want to make your life a little harder? Um, And I'm like, well, I don't think you're seeing how hard it already is doing this thing the way you're telling me I need to do it. Um, so it was a bit of a process with my mom, my uncle, um, I've got a small family, so my uncle was pretty much game for it. And he's like, as long as you're happy, it's fine. My aunt, I have an aunt. We do not speak. Um, she was very clear, uh, as I was getting ready to graduate college that she did not believe that my transness was authentic, and she felt wow. that the people in the people I felt safe with in school were just sort of entertaining me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I walked okay. out of the restaurant and took a lift home because she she wanted to drive me home, and I was like, absolutely not. No. Um, but so the thing that gets my family is that. My aunt is the one who introduced them to, like, their first gay person. <laughs> and so what floors them is that she was not able to accept me because she was able to accept other people. Uh, and that's just some internalized internalized everything um, that when she said she never wanted to speak to me again and we were at dinner, wow. I was like... I can't. This has to be it. Uh, And I had cut her out before um, because she, my mom had uh, cancer when I was in high school and my aunt had made a stink about me staying in the room with her overnight. I like missed three days of school just so I could stay in the hospital with my mom. Um, But I knew, I knew like medical place, medical institutions were not new to racism so I was going to take care of my mom Um, but she didn't get that Uh, and like it's just so interesting hearing how people sort of grapple with that Uh, because even my aunt's husband who he black man from Chicago um, seen a lot of his own shit um he was coming around but because they were a unit I understood that I could not have a relationship with one if I was not in relationship with the other so my family became that much smaller but technically um, in the way that chosen family is just much more beautiful in many ways like my my family has grown exponentially since then and uh it's like I wish my aunt the best and am always here, but it just it it wasn't worth it. 
It's like I, I knew I was making a good decision for myself. I don't think I would have gotten to this point had I still been the person that she was holding on to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, you know, deep down when something needs to change and you got to change it. You just got to go with it. Yeah. 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 I felt that. <laughs> <laughs> that was all. That a whole is, word right there. That's a, that's, yeah. you know, I, I just think that's a beautiful note to perhaps end this segment on. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just hope everyone just carries that with them. Um, Because it's hard out there, Mm y'all. You know. Tell, tell Tell your people that you love them. Because, I mean, I'm sure someone needs to hear it. And this is why we need to continue dismantling white supremacy! (laughs) (laughs) So that everyone can feel free. God. All right. Tell your people you love them and smash the cis hetero patriarchy together. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's a family affair. (laughs) No, we don't have the rights. Don't start singing. I was definitely about to. (laughs) Well, I think that that's. A lovely note to move into our next segment, Pure Black Joy, or in this case also, Pure Latinx Joy, Pure Latina Joy, Pure Hispanic Joy, whatever, all of the above. (laughs) Honestly, I I think Latinx is good, Latina is a fun one. Yeah. I'm, I'm liking that one. I just, (laughs) (laughs) it's truly, like, there are so many terms that people come out with, um, that I, just to keep up, I'm just like, well, Latinx is cool, and I think it covers a lot of the gender um, conversation within mm-hmm. the the Hispanic world, but then also Latine just has a like, little ring to it. And it, I like it. Does. <laughs> I like it Latine, does. too, but... It looks pretty when it's written out. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I guess Latinx? Should we go with yeah. Latinx? Okay, well, we'll be right back with pure Latinx. We are back, and it is time for our favorite segment. I hope it's y'all's favorite segment. It's time for Hit It, Page, three, two, one. Peanut butter jelly time, 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 peanut butter jelly Favorite Cubano, <laughs> Mr. Frankie Charles. And so we are going to turn it over to him first for a little pure Latinx joy. Yeah. So I wanted to share with everyone today, every now and then I go through um, new people on my Spotify and because uh, I just, I love music. Um, and folks who may have a familiarity with like famous Cuban singers. A big one is Celia Cruz. Um, Love her music. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, someone that I found recently is uh, Seema Funk. Um, And 
just pulling up the Spotify page um, on him. Sima uh, Funk offers a subtle and bold mix of funk with Afro-Cuban music, a life-affirming sound, a UFO in the island's music scene. Um, his name encapsulates his musical compass in Cuba, the term Cimarron refers to the rebellious black slaves who escaped slavery and fled to the wild to live freely. It is a term that captures his claim for black Cuban heritage, but also his willingness to liberate himself from well-trodden musical paths. And uh, I, I love funk. I love, I love music of all kinds. And just this, this really felt like a good a good person to share with this group um so i don't know what's next yeah no i'm, <laughs> I'm trying to hear some life-affirming sounds but okay <laughs> no well we don't we don't have to do it right now okay. because like we, 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 we don't have that in the budget but <laughs> maybe you can spell the artist's name because i feel like that might help people to find it and okay yeah. and we'll put a link to the spotify page in the show notes okay. so everyone awesome. can go check it out yeah, so uh, his his name is C-I-M-A-F-U-N-K, and the particular EP that I found uplifting today was Kun Kun Para. Um, yeah, it's it's good music, y'all. I, I love it. It's, Can't wait to listen. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I see all of us looking at our phones. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's, there looks like there's a lot to be joyous about. So who wants to go first? Oh, I was just making sure I'm following Seema Funk because that, oh, okay. that description just sounds like it's for me. It just, yeah. Well, I think I have an idea what you're going to talk about, Liz. Yes, yeah, which she probably I'm, exactly know what I was about to talk about. Well, I just think we would be remiss if we did not talk about a very historic, amazing thing that happened in the opera industry this week, which is that the Met premiered Fire Shit Up In My Bones, the first yeah. opera on the Met stage by a black composer, mm-hmm. Terrence Blanchard. Kind of Lib- wild. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, libretto by Casey Lemon, so mm-hmm. Eve's Bayou fame, and all sorts of other movies. And it's just incredible. Absolutely. Incredible. And, you know, I read in Vulture um, this morning a rave review, and... Yeah, a so rare ray from Vulture. They love tearing things apart. I mean, <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> the name's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but but love us. Yeah, looking for some wood to knock on. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but did you want to say a little bit more? Um, no. Oh. No, that was just it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, go see that. <laughs> go see Fire Shut Up In My Bones, and congratulations to everyone involved, because that is a major achievement, mm-hmm. and that is amazing. And all of us black folks and brown folks and Asian folks who are sitting here watching that happen, especially those of us in the opera industry, it is inspiring and very cool. Not so cool that it took so long, but cool that it's <laughs> happening. <laughs> Does anybody know if there are, if they have plans for it to be like streamed or live streamed or I a don't digital? Know. I, I didn't read anything about it. Anything like that? I mean, that. I hope so. I hope so too. Yeah. I remember that being 
I mean, obviously now they show it, but I remember with Porgy and Bess, mm-hmm. so many people wanting to see it. And I was like, this is amazing and historic. It would be a shame if it's inaccessible to <laughs> a lot of us. So, you know, I, you know, if you happen to work at the men and if there are no plans for that, you know, if you could just think about us who don't live in New York or who can't go for whatever reason. Inclusivity. <laughs> Please. Well, um, for me, I know I just kind of took over yours. I'm sorry. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I know what you're going to talk about. And then, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, but I was just going to say, I mean, this week, speaking of blackness intersecting with queerness, um, if we could talk about Montero for a second. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it. Please. Yes. I mean. Yes. Thank you, Lynn Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean that's really all I have to say and I think everyone <laughs> needs to listen to it mm-hmm. needs to watch all those videos mm-hmm. every single one mm-hmm. because he's just he is just a genius I'm sorry I just think he's so smart oh my God, yeah. <laughs> and so creative and so subversive mm-hmm. in just the best way you know and so I just you know, if that little closeted 17-year-old who was trying to date women um, in 1999 had a little Nas X, I just think, you know, my my development would have been so different. <laughs> um, so I just I just thank little Nas X just for being out here and being himself. And... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Protect little Nas X at all costs. Absolutely. Absolutely. At this point, he's a gem. I, I was trying to think of another... Your black joy, honestly, but as you said that, yeah, that's it. That's yeah. that's 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 pretty much it. Yeah, Lil Nas X and everything he's doing from the genius internet trolling marketing like, that he's so funny. Brilliant. Like, do people realize yet that the more they like criticize or say, oh, he's Spoiling the children, or I just think it's too much. He he's just going to do even more. That's, like, what, yeah. I mean, that's what I mean when I think he's like a genius because he yeah. just the way that he just takes every critici- criticism of himself, yeah. turns it inside out and upside down, and lobs it back. It's <laughs> <laughs> just I mean it's masterful. It really is. It really is. So, I mean that on top of like the album, actually y'all like has some really like. I, I, first, I love it how it switches genres. It slaps. The mm-hmm. album is slapping, okay? <laughs> like, just how it goes from genre to genre. And I was surprised at, like, how vulnerable, like, a lot of the lyrics mm-hmm. are about just, like, family dynamics, what it's like to be in the spotlight at this mm-hmm. moment, the ups and the downs mm-hmm. of it. And... A lot that's also specifically about like being a dark-skinned black gay man mm-hmm. and I appreciate the imagery of like a, a lot of the time like when we see like queer folks of color like it's no shade it's no tea but a lot of the time there's like a white partner or a white love mm-hmm. interest and so seeing like dark-skinned black gay men black gay men loving each other is <laughs> I just, I can't get enough of it. Yeah. I just love it. It's yeah. so much. It makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, David Baral, I hope I'm pronouncing his surname correctly, one of 
uh, Lil Nas X's producers who recently won the VMA is the son of our board member, Dr. Fanny's Miller. Really? What? Yes, yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, where y'all been? Nas X. So, Lil Nas X. On so, the also, a bit. Am I allowed? Fingers <laughs> So, Lil Nas X, if you're listening, um, you know, come join us. Obviously, this is the space for you. <laughs> you try on whatever you want. Come, come through. <laughs> so I did have one more that I just thought was fascinating, and we can blow through it really quick because I know we don't have much time left. Um, but I saw this on the news last night, and I was fascinated. Have you all heard about the full circle Everest expedition? No. It's a group of nine black folks, and they are a team, and they are going to be the first black people, the first black all black group to scale Mount Everest. What? Hell yeah. Wow. And their whole philosophy is like they just they want us to be on the top of the world. Because <laughs> on, only ten, only ten people, only ten black people in the history of you know people scaling Mount Everest have have gotten to the top, huh. and these nine people have gotten together, and they're like, we're gonna be a whole team, and we're gonna get up together. That's I mean, awesome. hell yeah! Look at us I out here it. doing stuff, <laughs> like I doing big it. things, you know. So I just, I just thought that was amazing. So I just wanted to shout out Full Circle Everest Expedition. So. Go go check them out and give them some love and some mm. good positive put some positive vibes in the world. Like like, hand warmers like, or Mount, something. <laughs> yeah, because Mount, Mount Everest is not for me. <laughs> it's not for me for for a number of reasons. But like y'all do y'all, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Godspeed. Yes, absolutely. We'll be down here cheering you on. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> well, I think that's gonna be it for us this week thank you so much Frankie for joining us thank you (laughs) we had so much fun I hope you had fun oh yeah definitely this was a lot of fun (laughs) (laughs) best day at work I think (laughs) (laughs) oh good well we aim to please (laughs) well we 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 hope to have you on again hopefully soon whenever y'all I'm just here (laughs) Literally right above us. Yes, so. yes. And, and Leah's your supervisor. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and thank all the rest of you for joining us out there. It's such a privilege to be able to do this show with my colleagues and friends this week. And the fact that like people listen to it and we're now a tiny little hyperlink in the paper record is very exciting so if there are new listeners welcome we're happy that you're here if you liked what she heard <laughs> please feel free to go to apple Podcasts or spotify and leave a, a review with words or if you just want to do stars remember five five not four not one Five. I'm not. I'm not playing. <laughs> Don't make me come through these these AirPods. <laughs> and of course, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and tell your little friends. Share us. Um, so, any words of wisdom before we head off into this this brave new week? Okay. <laughs> Mouths agog. <laughs> Well, I think just 
like Frankie said earlier, just remember to tell the people that you love them, that you love. Remember to tell the people that you love that you love them. There you go. (laughs) That's the order. And we will see you in two weeks. All right. Peace and increase. Bye, everybody. (laughs)